This is a Founding Media podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Great Society, a podcast about people who are working to elevate the voices of others. I'm your host, Constance Dykusen. My guest today is my friend, Brooke Axtell. She's an activist, author, and founder of She Is Rising, a healing community for women and girls overcoming rape, abuse, and sex trafficking. Brooke read from her new book, and we chatted about survivor leadership and how art has helped her heal. Here's my conversation with Brooke. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Great Society. I'm your host, Constance Dykusen. I'm here with my friend, author, and activist, Brooke Axtell. Thanks so much for being here, Brooke. My pleasure. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you today because you've been a friend for a long time, and then you also have a book that just came out. I'm very excited to talk about that. I was able to read it. Um, can you start off today by kind of reading from, it's actually called Beautiful Justice, Reclaiming My Worth After Human Trafficking and Sexual Abuse. Yes. Is there a passage? I need to find one for us. I was excited when I was reading it. I didn't actually know that I was in it, but I think that's the part you're going to read. So I'm excited for you to recount that for us. Yes, I want to find the passage from our experience going to the red light district in Bangkok. And you were my guide to that area. And it was very meaningful for me. I was in Bangkok to speak for members of parliament from over 30 Southeast Asian countries addressing gender-based violence and human trafficking. But I also had this deep awareness that the reality of these issues was very close to the area where I was speaking. And I want to make sure that I had the opportunity to connect with some survivors. So I was thrilled that I could be a part of that with you. And I need to find the passage. When I walked down one of the main streets of the red light district with my friend Constance, I witnessed bar after bar filled with white Western men holding their drinks and checking out the merchandise. Every time I saw a new neon sign advertising girls or heard another wave of men laughing with their crew, I was filled with disgust. Each one reminded me of my trafficker and the men he sold me to. Callous men ruled by their cravings, disconnected from the truth of the suffering they left in their wake. They refused to see what their desires, divorced from the reality of other human lives, ultimately cost. Although technically it is not legal for the bars in Bangkok to directly sell the girls, they facilitate the transaction and benefit financially. In most of the visible commercial establishments, a buyer picks a girl and then pays the bar an exit fee to take her somewhere to perform sexual acts. To the uneducated eye, it might appear to be consensual, but the histories of abuse, coercion, and poverty tell a different story. There is an illusion of a constant party with copious drinks, loud music, and young, smiling girls. Some have numbers pinned to their clingy dresses so they can quickly be identified by a buyer. This ploy conceals the reality of rape, complex trauma, and economic vulnerability. It also hides the fact that many of them are underage. A few blocks from the bars, a safe house for survivors of sex trafficking shelters girls in their teens and early 20s. Over a beautiful homemade dinner of Thai stews and rice dishes, I spoke to the girls about their experience in recovery. What do you love most about being here? 
I asked the girls at the dinner table. One of the staff members translated for me. When it was her turn to speak, the shy, slender girl sitting next to me smiled and said, What I like most about being here is learning about the love of God. She beamed as she shared this, her face illuminated from within. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me, I replied, in awe of her response. After walking past all the buyers, all the sellers, all the girls still trapped in poverty and exploitation, her answer pierced through my disgust and gave me hope. God was in the red light district. I saw her in the faces of these radiant girls. My favorite part about being here, another young woman said, is our Christmas parties. Every year during Christmas, we host a party and invite all the girls from the bars to come so we can give them presents and show them love. One of the staff members explained, we pay the bar owners a fee for any of the girls who want to come. It's the only time of year when they, re they receive. People are always taking from them. The girls were excited to show me the rest of the house. When we went upstairs, the gentle one, who talked about the love of God, walked with me. What are you passionate about? I asked. I make art, she said excitedly. Want to see? Absolutely, I said. She led me over to her collection of drawings and held up one for me to see, smiling with pride. That is gorgeous. You are a talented artist. Thank you she said with quiet confidence. She spoke like a person who had started to grasp her own worth. I left my dinner with the survivors of Bangkok filled with hope. After all they endured, they are living with the joy of loving and being loved. They are learning the truth of their spiritual identity and purpose. Love found them in one of the most loveless places on earth. In the past, they were told they were nothing more than sexual commodities to be consumed by men with greater power and privilege. Now, they were preparing for college and spoke with excitement about their dreams for the future. As I watched the sunrise over Bangkok the next day, I could see that the light within these young survivors was far fiercer than the violence that was forced on their bodies. Thank you so much. I feel like I'm in a trance. I feel like your voice is so beautiful and you took me back to that night that I remember well. Um, I loved getting to see that little girl's art. I still remember looking at it and just how exceptionally gifted she she was by, by any standard, but particularly to be able to make such beautiful art and to find hope after what she'd been through. Um, and that to me is what reading your book was like too, getting to read about your story um, getting to see how much beauty you found on the other side of it. You're a really talented artist, performer, um, poet, writer, all these things. You perform with Katy Perry at the Grammys, mm -hmm. um, which is how you open the book. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what art has done for you and allowed you to do and how it's um, allowed you to connect with other survivors? Well, thank you for that. Art has been a powerful catalyst for my healing. There is a core message that is communicated through all abuse, which is that our voices and our desires don't matter. So 
for me, the power of creative expression is that it affirms that our vision of the world, that our voices have value and that we deserve to be heard. I also feel that in the context of abuse, we often learn that we are to be ashamed, that somehow we are responsible or that we're somehow fundamentally broken because of the things that have been done to us. And I think part of the power of art is that we get to reclaim and redefine who we are as creative and resilient individuals who have a contribution to make. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I introduce creative expression into the work that I do with survivors is because I think part of the the power of it is being able to offer not only a, a path for voicing our truth and our experiences, but also it's a entry point into a new identity and being able to shift from being a victim or even merely a survivor to being the artist of our own lives and really seeing that we do have choice and we do have agency even when we've experienced things that are deeply traumatic and over which we had no control, that we still have the ability to rise up on the other side and to define who we want to be in the world. I love that, the artists of our own lives. Um, I, I think what I was kind of surprised by about your book is just how practical it was. Because, like, I work with um, sexual abuse and trafficking survivors, but you really laid out a roadmap that was really practical. You were really honest and raw about the process that you went through, but you also talked so much about how it's important to bring in other faith traditions for people to take their backgrounds into account when they're going through this process. Can you tell me a little bit about what you recommend and what you lay out for survivors in the book? With the the spiritual piece, I think it's really important to make sure that we're not replicating some of the power and control dynamics that are set up in abuse and sexual mm -hmm. exploitation. And I think often people who are well-meaning in different faith traditions want to present their religious ideology as the only way to heal. And I think it becomes really important instead to engage in conversations with survivors based on their unique backgrounds, their spiritual values, and their practices to really help them to trust their own spiritual path and to define over time what will be most healing for them. Mm -hmm. Because I think something that's stolen from us is our ability to trust ourselves, to trust that we can make meaning, that we can know what is true for us. Because in the context of abuse, we are essentially forced to live inside someone else's reality, someone mm -hmm. else's view of the world, someone else's uh, concept of who we are and what we should believe. And sometimes that's just implicit in the abuse and sometimes it's very explicit. Mm -hmm. And particularly if there's any sort of religious justification used for why we're being abused, it becomes that much more important for people to be encouraged to find their own spiritual practices and, and spiritual meaning in ways that feel deeply healing to them. And I think there's sometimes this temptation if something has been helpful for us to think, well, then it should apply to everyone. Yeah, to share it with everybody. And so I try to stay away from being prescriptive, mm -hmm. and I tried to stay away from that in the book. You know, I, I did share, okay, these are the practices that have been helpful mm -hmm. for me personally, and I actually just want you to trust yourself and yeah. trust that you can know what's right for you. So I think as advocates, we just need to be really mindful of the fact that what may feel liberating and healing for one person might actually feel violating mm -hmm. and alienating for someone else. And to just become really curious about you know, what is someone's religious background? What, in what ways has religion potentially been used to harm them? Mm -hmm. And in what ways can we maybe offer 
some some guidance and encouragement for them to pursue their own spiritual path in a way that feels authentic and healing and really trust that they can actually know for themselves what is good and right for them. That's really great. Thanks. Um, I think one thing working in, I call it the anti-trafficking space. I know social, mm-hmm. People say social justice or human rights or however you wanted to call it. But um, I think one thing that's really particularly started started to really bug me is kind of the idea of, of rescuing and freeing girls and like going out kind of on this crusade um, and, and boys and men and women. Um, and so, but I, th- I think what, why that bothers me is because there's kind of an impatience with funders, with programs for people to be healed, to be freed, to be on the other side of it. It's almost mm-hmm. like people expect it to be this physical binary, like you're enslaved, you're not enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, in your book, you lay out so clearly and so beautifully how, I mean, you talk about dissociation, you talk about even the concept of soul loss, how you mm-hmm. felt like you lost your soul in this process. And that's just not something that is on the other side of a door or of a, of a rescue attempt or a, of an organization trying to get involved in your life. So can you tell me kind of about what you, maybe what, how, how your journey was through, through healing and maybe what we can, what we can come to expect kind of as allies from people and maybe we can't expect anything. Maybe that's the point. I love that you brought this up. I think that language of rescue is problematic for multiple reasons. Obviously, if, if you were, a child or or someone who has been uh, physically restrained and held captive in a very specific context, the language of rescue becomes more appropriate. Mm-hmm. But we know that the reality of sex trafficking, both domestically and globally, is that there are vulnerabilities which are exploited, psychological coercion which takes place, and then also violence and threats of violence. But it's more complicated than just a mere physical rescue. And, and that is for several reasons. I think one of the primary reasons is that there is the the physical realities of this kind of exploitation, but there are also the psychological, emotional, emotional and spiritual realities. And what I have seen in, in my own work is that liberation is a process. Mm-hmm. So we can offer physical refuge, for instance, in uh, a shelter or a residential community. We can offer the you know law enforcement intervention we can offer advocacy there are all these tools and ways that we can offer support for someone to exit exploitation just in the way that we can offer tools and support for someone to exit say a domestic violence relationship mm-hmm. But we also can't make choices for people. Right. And I think the statistic is it takes somebody seven times or something like that to leave an abuser and in trafficking. I've known women that have gone back to it after the, quote, rescue or after I've been like, hello, I'm here to help you. And then but that's kind of the life that they have chosen or is right for them for that moment, even if there's that psychological complicity and like all these other things and trauma that feed into that. But it's it's such a. It's such a wider thing, right? It's not right. just this binary. So I think w- the way I view that is it's the internalization of oppression. Mm-hmm. I-, I love the work of Brazilian educator Apollo Freire, and I-, I mentioned him in the book. And he talks about the fact that after someone's been oppressed long enough that they internalize the guidelines of the oppressor and they actually become fearful of freedom. And it's very Mm -hmm. similar to what you see in terms of domestic violence and the trauma bonding and the loyalty that can happen. I mean, we even see with prisoners of war that prisoners of war, these are are warriors, soldiers who have advanced training 
to resist psychological coercion, and we still see that they can become loyal to their captors, mm -hmm. right? They can actually become, because they are so emotionally dependent on their captors, they can actually become loyal to them. And so when you think about the vulnerability of a young woman who doesn't have that training, who doesn't have that preparation, how much more is she going to be vulnerable to becoming emotionally dependent and loyal to the very person that's harming her. And from the outside, that's so confusing. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to have this very linear rescue narrative in which someone's always grateful to be physically removed from a situation. Right. But if you put it in the context of internalized oppression, then liberation then becomes a process. Right. And then our role as advocates and allies is to, to see what could be my place in supporting ongoing liberation for this person mm -hmm. and to be a voice to affirm their value, to affirm their choices, to affirm their options. I saw this even when I was in a domestic violence relationship. There were maybe six or seven people along my path, whether mm -hmm. it was someone who witnessed me being verbally abused or law enforcement who showed up or a family member who reflected back to me, this is not the way you deserve to be treated, there were different points along the way where someone reflected back to me, this is not what you deserve. Mm -hmm. Another way is possible for you. How can I support you? And I needed to hear that multiple times before I was ready to exit that relationship. So I very, I, I very much think that there are a lot of parallels. Mm -hmm. if, if somebody had tried to step in and, and essentially force me before I was ready, mm -hmm. I think it actually would have in some ways made me more loyal to the relationship because I was not ready psychologically. I needed someone along these different points of my story to be able to reflect the truth back to me. And I think that's the most powerful thing that we can do is to understand that for someone who's been through sex trafficking or partner violence, our our greatest gift is to be with them mm -hmm. in empathy to speak truth and encouragement about mm -hmm. the truth of their identity, and then to always affirm, how can I support you? And here are options if you want them, yeah. and I will walk with you as you explore what those options might look like. I think the the rescue narrative is one that we really need to challenge because it really doesn't take into account the way that complex trauma works mm -hmm. and the way that the neurobiological impact of trauma works. And when we begin to understand that and the fact that when you've been abused long enough, abuse is your norm. And for human beings, what is normal, what is familiar feels safe. And mm -hmm. it's very confusing and it takes time. So Yes, if somebody's physically held hostage or they're a child, we need that immediate and direct mm -hmm. physical intervention. But obviously, it's more complex than that. Yeah. So I prefer to frame it in terms of how do we support someone in their own path to freedom and healing? How do we help someone exit dangerous and abusive situations? And what ways can we support them to do that? rather than framing ourselves as the hero of the narrative. Yeah, I love that. You you call, you call refer to those kind of people as allies in the book, mm -hmm. and you laid it out. In your intro, um, you call it an invitation to beautiful justice, which mm -hmm. I love. Mm -hmm. um, and you made a literal list of how allies can be there for people who are in trauma-exploitative situations. You start with affirm our worth, support us in practical ways, offer us compassion, keep reaching out, remind us of our joy. Um, how did you come up with that? There's there, You go on as well, but how did you come up with that list? Is there anything that you want to reiterate um, in terms of the needs of survivors? When I was composing that list, I 
was reflecting on what was most helpful for me Mm -hmm. in terms of the people who cared about me and and wanted to support my healing. But I also was thinking about what actually worked in my advocacy, particularly with women in their teens and 20s. And for me, I think the most important piece of that is being in a space where we're willing to walk with someone in their suffering and not necessarily focus on providing a solution, but cultivating a relationship. Because I think the the greatest the greatest gift that we can give someone and helping them move towards physical and emotional safety is cultivating a real relationship. And it's, it's from those real relationships based on empathy and respect and this continuous outreach and this continuous presence and encouragement toward the things that give them life and give them joy that they are over time willing to make some courageous and difficult choices to start their healing path. I think the framework of looking at particularly sex trafficking from the standpoint only of physical safety really misses the mark because the truth is it's the relationships that keep people safe. Mm -hmm. And it's the lack of relationship, the lack of support that makes people vulnerable to exploitation. So from my perspective, the antidote is real relationship and real community. And and people are vulnerable to exploitation when they don't have that. So Mm -hmm. if we want to be a part of the solution, we have to look at are we really willing for you know any form of interpersonal violence or exploitation? Are we willing to be with people in their suffering, even when it's very hard to witness mm-hmm. and to listen, knowing that we can't necessarily immediately be the solution, but we can be one voice of hope along the way? Yeah. How do you? How do you? I mean, I guess speaking as somebody who. I want to do good. Like, I want to be involved in things like this. How do you divorce yourself from that idea that, or like control of the narrative? Because I think that's still kind of an ongoing thing for me. Like, I want to be able to prove to donors for organizations that I'm working for or in the social media that I do for nonprofits, like, we're making a difference. Like, how do you show up for people, but then also like be accountable to donors and to things like that? That is complex. I, I found that when it comes to fundraising and communicating impact, that usually the numbers that are communicated and the way in which they're communicated are we've rescued this number of girls, right. or maybe even if it's in the realm of direct services, we've provided therapy or you know beds for this number of individuals, which can be even more difficult to communicate impact because you're saying we're providing services for for this many girls, but what is the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with complex trauma, it's not it's not that easy. It's not but I, right. But I think I think one of the most powerful tools we have to communicate in a meaningful way with potential donors or with people that want to be a part of collective impact is to tell stories, real stories mm-hmm. about how survivors actually view the the impact of those services in terms of their personal journey, knowing that for many of us, this is a lifelong path. I I still feel that even though I have incredible emotional freedom in my life, Mm -hmm. that I am continuously committed to a journey of healing and recovery. So when I look back, for instance, at the services that I received at Safe Place, now, now Safe or Safe Alliance, did my 10 therapy sessions there resolve everything for me? No. But 
having access to free therapy at the time that I needed it most was absolutely life-saving and Mm life-transforming and set me on a path where then I could begin to seek out what was next for me. So I think, you know, for, for donors being able to understand the stories and understand I couldn't do the work that I'm doing now Mm -hmm. if I didn't have those 10 free therapy sessions. And yet, obviously, I needed far more than that. And so being able to look at the story and the overarching narrative of why that's meaningful, why that's important and life-saving to me becomes a way that we can both be honest and communicate impact. So I think survivor narratives in that in that way become really important because we can say, okay, we've served this many people, we've offered these particular forms of outreach, we've educated this many people. But I think hearing directly from survivors what it has meant to them, even if they've had a relapse, even if they haven't been able to permanently end the cycle of violence immediately, mm-hmm. being able to say, for you, what was impactful? Why did this matter? I think those questions become more important as we're trying to both be honest and yeah. communicate impact. I love that. Um, one of the organizations I work with um, in Thailand, actually, I was interviewing a survivor and her quote back to me when I kind of asked her about her experience was, I was able to claim justice for myself. Mm, and I was so happy that. that that was the quote. Even though our attorney was there pro bono helping her through the process, I loved that her narrative was, I did this for myself. And that's that's what we want, yeah. right, is for her to be able to Powerful. do that on her own. Um so I want to talk now about She Is Rising. You've you've done a lot of hard work on yourself. You've In the book, you lay out your path kind of to reintegration, to community, and now you're able to give back and to meet with survivors and to help them kind of find their own journeys. Can you tell me about when you started She Is Rising and how that's going? I founded She Is Rising a little over two years ago, and I created this project because I felt that there was a missing piece in the conversation around survivor healing, which was what I see as beyond the crisis phase, beyond short-term recovery to long-term recovery and the potential that we have to help survivors identify their gifts, passions, and capacity for leadership. I really wanted to be a part of a healing community where we could give mentorship and practical tools and opportunities and curate conversations around what it would look like for survivors to become leaders. And what was so fascinating to me is that when I first started these conversations with sex trafficking survivors in Texas, I was really struck by the fact that when I first started asking them to share with me what it meant to them to be a leader, all of their associations were negative. Mm -hmm. All of them. And all their associations with power were negative, which makes sense in terms of what they had been through. But they couldn't, in the first conversation that that I hosted, even give me an example of a leader that they admired. Wow. And that really blew me away because I had this vision of having a community of survivors who were all on their unique path to being leaders and change makers, and yet they fundamentally, because of the trauma they'd been through, associated power with abusive authority. Hmm. And so we had an incredible opportunity to really dive into 
what are their values and how could that show up in how they might want to lead. And so we started with what, what are the things that you want to see change in your community, sort of using that as an entry point to a conversation about what it means to be a leader. And then eventually, as they were identifying their leadership values, we were able to look at, okay, there are leaders like MLK and Mother Teresa that they were able to name. They were all people that were both deeply spiritual and also committed to social justice, which I found really inspiring. But when we started the conversation, they couldn't think of one person. Wow. And and so to me, that signals not just that we need to give women and girls who've experienced this kind of exploitation the the opportunity to receive mentoring and education and you know, concrete ways that they could step into their own unique path to leadership, whether it's through media and the arts or policy. But we also need to go deeper to the psychological piece. And what are the frameworks that they're still seeing the world through that make them feel that in order to be good and compassionate, in essence, you have to give up your power. And you, you, you can't actually be someone who is taking initiative to to lead in in that way. So what I found as we were continuing to have this conversation was that many of them told me no one has ever called me a leader. No one has ever told me that I could lead. Mm -hmm. This is the first time in my life that anyone has even said I could be a leader. It seems like you're creating a new language kind of and then like inviting them into it, right? Or like having to kind of redefine what it is and what it can be so that they can see themselves in that a bit. That was what became clear to me was that in order for them to even be willing to explore mm-hmm. what their unique path to leadership might be, that we had to start at the, be- the beginning. Yeah. And, and why do they believe that power is inherently bad mm-hmm. and inherently problematic? And what would it look like if they could channel their power for good in the world? And so once we started to work through those pieces, they were able to identify, okay, these are the ways I want to create impact in the world. These are the ways I want to express myself. These are the things that that break my heart or make Mm -hmm. me angry that we need to be addressing, whether it's the way stories about survivors are told in the media or it's, you know, antiquated policy. Mm -hmm. So that, that is exciting to me. And I'm also in transition right now with She Is Rising, and I'm looking more at what are the ways that I can integrate the last decade of both volunteer advocacy and professional advocacy working with survivors of gender-based violence and sex trafficking to focus on the prevention education. For a Mm -hmm. long time, I didn't have a strong belief that there was much we could do on the education side that would actually be effective. Mm which is is difficult to admit as somebody that is an activist and works in these spaces. I get it. I'm there <laughs> a lot of times. Uh, yeah. Because it, to me, it felt like this generic, let's ri- raise awareness, mm-hmm. but not actually directly engage with survivors. But I think the more and more that I've worked directly with survivors and the more that my heart has been expanded and broken open a thousand times hearing these stories, the more that I've wanted to look at are there pragmatic tools that we can give people through education that could help with both the prevention of partner violence, sexual violence, and sex trafficking. So that's been something I've been doing more lately, working with students, looking at particularly the intersections of dating violence and sex trafficking, because Mm -hmm. I feel like so many of the stories that I've heard, I would say over 70% of the cases that I've worked on, 
the trafficker presented himself as a potential boyfriend or love interest, and the grooming process and the beginning of the relationship was very similar to dating violence. So I've started to talk more about this, and I have a piece coming out uh, on CNN.com that's an, an op-ed on this subject, but I've been looking more for She Is Rising to to engage in some of the pieces of prevention education to mm-hmm. look at strategically how do we equip young people to identify the red flags of potentially abusive relationships and then what is the overlap between that and the way a potential trafficker may present. And although that doesn't address all types of trafficking, it does address the majority of the trafficking that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that She Is Rising, with the help of other survivor leaders in our community, could really look at innovative strategies for for prevention mm-hmm. and, and not just general raising awareness, which I'm not really interested in at this point, but looking at people, what people know, <laughs> right? What are, what are the tools that we could give particularly young women in mm-hmm. foster care in, uh, drug and alcohol treatment facilities, you know, the areas where we know there already is this vulnerability, mm-hmm. how can we equip them to recognize manipulation and, grooming and psychological coercion, how can we help them be more resilient when they might encounter these types mm-hmm. of grooming? Because I keep hearing from from young women, I just, I wish I had known yeah. how this worked. I wish I had understood what he was doing. And I see that both in dating violence and in sex trafficking. And there's so many parallels that my hope now is that She Is Rising could be a part of addressing that very specific prevention piece. Um, you've, you've kind of already answered this, but my question was just like, what is what does sex trafficking look like? In, we're in Central Texas. Like, what does it look mm-hmm. like here? You said it's a lot of um, things around dating violence and partner violence. So is there any other kind of like narratives that you think are worth sharing or that people should know about that might be different from the traditional idea? Right. So the the primary types of trafficking that I'm seeing are – uh, familial trafficking, so families mm. trafficking their own kids. Uh, the the type of trafficking I described earlier is often called, you know, the finesse pimp or the Romeo pimp. So essentially somebody who steps in and, you know, in the honeymoon phase promises to create a life with this person. And if they have economic vulnerability, I'm going to take care of you financially. And then, you know, if there's emotional vulnerability, I'm going to meet these emotional needs because, this young woman is not being taken care of in the ways that she needs to be. So that is the most common story that I see. And then and the minority of the cases I see are, you know, gang-affiliated or criminal network-affiliated. Uh, most of the time, the women and girls I encounter have been in uh, trafficking situations where there's one trafficker running maybe uh, just a few girls. Mm-hmm. And they all have a very similar relationship to the trafficker. And they're made to feel that they're part of this family and they have a role to take care of the family. Um in in family situations, in situations of family trafficking, family is is there addiction present? Or I think that's something that's really hard for people to maybe get their heads around. Is it that it's generation to generation? There's been trauma or abuse. Like, what do you think? Family trafficking. Yes, I think the addiction of the parents is the major risk factor, from oh. what I've seen, and uh, either allowing someone to step in and exploit the child because they're just simply not present. Or exploiting the child in a direct manner because they're trying to feed their addiction. Wow. 
Um, so what, what's next for you? You have a book. Um, yes. You have She is Rising. What's coming up? So over the next couple of months, I'll be traveling and speaking to focus on conversations around what it means to create beautiful justice for survivors and for allies. I hope to inspire both survivors of gender violence and sex trafficking as well as allies to have a meaningful dialogue about what it means to create a more expansive vision of justice outside of the criminal justice system. So one of the themes that I explore in the book is the the definition of just being what is deserved. And I feel that we often fixate on justice as merely being the conviction of perpetrators within the criminal justice system. And although I think that form of accountability is important, we have a very broken system that often does not serve survivors and protect survivors. And so I'm really interested in, even when we have the best case scenario and a perpetrator is held accountable for the crimes that they commit, I feel that that is incomplete because it doesn't address the cost and the emotional aftermath of the trauma. And so, you know, I talk about in the book how I was in the courtroom when a trafficker was convicted in in a federal case, but I watched the aftermath of what it was like for the girls who went through that Mm -hmm. and the, the pain that they were still in and the struggles they still had. And I felt like even though this is the best case scenario for them from a legal standpoint, from an emotional and psychological standpoint, it wasn't justice because they didn't yet know their value. They didn't yet have the ability to tap into their own emotional freedom. And so I am hoping in in the next couple of months to continue these conversations around what it means to support survivors in creating their own emotional freedom and their own beautiful justice as they define what that means for them, which ultimately is a question of what does it take for them to thrive and to know their worth. You're the best person for that, I think. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, and this is a question I ask everybody. Um, how do you define success for yourself? Like in your work, in your creative endeavors, how do you think about success? Do you try to measure your work in any way? The first piece of success for me is engaging in creative work that makes me come alive that is meaningful and creative and that constantly awakens my curiosity and passion. So I'm very process-oriented in the way that I view success. It's more for me about how I'm experiencing the work. And then the second piece is, does the work that I'm doing in the world resonate with and contribute to healing and justice for the communities that I care about? And so I base that more on the very intimate stories I hear from the people that I'm speaking to and working with, because it's impossible for me to to measure that beyond what I know to be true for the people that reflect back to me how how the work is speaking to them and serving them. So I'm very process-oriented and relational in the way that I view success and, you know, my hope is always that I can lead by example. So it's important to me that the way in which I engage in the work is joyful 
and meaningful and stimulates my creativity, but is also of service in a meaningful way to others. So when I hit that sweet spot, that's where I feel most alive and I feel like I can continue to make a contribution. Thanks. Thank you so much for educating me and inspiring me and always letting me know when my work is good, my work is maybe needs some work. I really appreciate (laughs) your perspective um, that you bring. And thank you for your book. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much to my guest, Brooke Axtell. Please pick up a copy of Brooke's book, Beautiful Justice. She has such a powerful story, and we all have so much to learn from her experience as either survivors or allies. To follow her work, you can go to sheisrising.org. We will put a link in the show notes. The Great Society team includes me, Constance Dykusen, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you to everyone at Founding Media for your support. Thanks for listening.